from the National Association of Evangelicals, welcome to today's conversation. Our topic, Theology of Race. Host Leith Anderson, president of the NAE, talks with Walter Kim, associate minister of Park Street Church in Boston, Massachusetts. Let's join in. I'm Leith Anderson, president of NAE, here with Walter Kim. Walter has taught at Boston College and Harvard University and has been published in the area of Biblical Studies and Hebrew Language. He received his BA from Northwestern University, a Master of Divinity degree from Regent College, and a PhD in Near Eastern Languages and Civilizations from Harvard University. Prior to his pastoral ministry at Park Street Church, this historic church that has helped to found the NAE, uh, he ministered in various Asian American and Asian Canadian contexts and in a chaplaincy at Yale University. He currently serves on the board of the National Association of Evangelicals. Events of the last couple of years in Ferguson, Baltimore, South Carolina, and other places in our country have exposed long-standing injustices and misunderstandings between those in black and white communities and have brought the issue of race to the forefront of many discussions. As evangelicals, we want to start with the Bible. What does the Bible have to say about race? That's the focus of our conversation today. So thanks for joining us, Walter. First, let's just get right to a basic question, uh, right, making sure we're on the same page. What are we talking about when we use the word race? What, what does that mean? Well, it depends who you ask. If you ask a biologist or a sociologist, they would give uh, different answers. But I think functionally, when most people uh, consider the issue of race, they associate it with perceptions of physical or genetic characteristics, characteristics like skin color or facial features, black or white skin tone, Latino or Asian facial features. Uh, and it's this particular access and definition of race uh, that is probably most present uh, on the consciousness of people as they raise this uh, issue to address. And I'm assuming that most people notice, the, I, I'm sensing that in some cultures this is a bigger deal than it is in others, and for some people, I, I had sort of an embarrassing moment recently. I was at a conference with an African-American friend and the topic was race and a few months later we were talking about one of the speakers there and the race of the speaker came up and I said the person was Caucasian uh, my friend said the speaker was African-American you know I, I looked it up I was wrong and, and and he was right so is our culture more or less addressing and sensitive to this than others in history and around the world I think this really gets at the issue of categorization. Uh, as humans, we have a finite ability to organize all the information that comes through our senses. And so, of course, we're going to try to come up with ways of categorizing the information. And when it comes to people, one of the ways we attempt to categorize is by the features that we see with our eyes and associate with a certain set of meanings of the person's origin or value and so forth. Uh, this this really isn't a problem just for North Americans. This is really a function of being human, the need to categorize. The real question is, 
are the categories that we use appropriate or can they be misused? And this is where we in America have gotten ourselves into a very complex and challenging situation. Let's tie that back to the Bible. Does the word race even appear in the Bible? You know, that's an interesting question. The Bible is completely comfortable with this notion of categorization. In fact, if you go to the Old Testament in Genesis chapter 10, uh, categories are in fact used to define, divide humans. Uh, and so you have these table of nations. So you read about the sons of Japheth, and from these the maritime people spread out into their territories, by their clans, within their nations, each within its own language. Uh, the categories that exist, at least in this passage, are territories, geographical categories, nation, political category, clan, familial category, language, linguistic category. But what we notice is that there is no racial category, at least racial in the terms that we use today. Uh, even in the New Testament, this also exists. When we look at the new heavens and the new earth, this redeemed existence of humanity, if there's ever occasion to obliterate uh, categories, you would think heaven would be that occasion, that we're all fully sanctified, we're all made in the image of Christ. But even in that setting, there is categorization. And so we read in Revelation chapter 5, and they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, because you were slain. And with your blood you purchased people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on earth. You see there in Revelation 5 the same kinds of categories that you see in Genesis 10 geographical, political, familial, linguistic, but there again you also see there are no racial categories. Again, at least in terms of how we understand race. So the Bible definitely has uh, human categorization, but it uses categories that are not quite the categories that we use in North America. And yet you mentioned Japheth and you mentioned Genesis 10 and that very chapter became the basis for an interpretation of the Bible by slave owners when they would talk about Ham and claim that to be a biblical justification for race-based slavery. So the, the Bible has been used uh, in this matter some different ways. That's right. And it's unfortunate, but it is the reality, once again, of our human existence that we often take our own perceptions and the grids of our values, our assumptions, our presuppositions, both ones that are good and generous, but also ones that are tainted deeply by sin. Uh, and we read God's word through these lenses. Again, lenses that in part are filled with grace and charity, uh, but also lenses that are tainted in such a fashion that we are predisposed to find in scripture uh, affirmation of our own prejudice. This is why we need a diverse community to provide a sort of check and balance system in how we approach scripture. Just to be clear, I mean, you are the specialist in both the Old Testament, especially Old Testament languages. What these uh, slave owners did was 
as I understand, totally unjustified. And this is simply something that was not in the Bible that they read back in about Ham. Is that correct? That is correct. Let's talk about a theology of race. Um, You mentioned uh, Genesis 10. If you want to build a theology of race, so it's not just biblical examples, but it's the structures, the interconnection, the study of it. Uh, How should we start thinking about that from a, a biblical theology? Well, we should begin at the beginning, and that is with the image of God. Uh, In the statement that God makes about the creation of humanity, uh, the Bible reveals something true of all humans. So let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea, birds in the sky, the livestock, wild animals, over all creatures that move along the ground. Uh, And so being created in God's image is something that's true of every single human being, irrespective of background. There's no differentiation here uh, that some have greater or lesser aspects of the image of God. But the image of God in this particular context in the Old Testament world wasn't wasn't something that was only a revelation of a truth, but it was a countercultural statement. In the ancient Near East, the language of image of God wasn't simply biblical language. It was language used in a very specific context. So you have King Esarhaddon, one of the kings of the Assyrian uh, Empire. He made a statement that a free man is as the shadow of God, the slave is as the shadow of the free man, but the king is unto the very image of God. So in the worldview of the ancient Near East, it was really only the king that bore the image of God. Everyone else existed at a lower plane. And this gets at at a very important point, that power often creates an image imbalance, so to speak. That those in power often define the terms of what it means to be created in the image of God. And those who are left outside of the power structure are left with a definition that is subpar in terms of the image of God. A, a, a classic study on this was done uh, in the 1930s and 40s, a, a study done by uh, Kenneth and Mamie Clark. Uh, this study was used uh, in the Supreme Court case of Brown versus the Board of Education. Now, Clark was the first African-American to earn a doctorate in psychology at Columbia. And his wife uh, was the second to do that. Now, in the experiment, Clark showed black children aging range from six to nine, two dolls, one white doll and one black doll. And then the children were asked the following questions. Questions like, show me the doll that you like best. Show me the doll that you would like to play with. Show me the doll that is the nice doll. Show me the doll that looks bad. There was an overwhelming movement to affirm that the white doll was the good doll, was the nice doll, was the doll that you would want to play with, uh, and that the black doll was the doll that was bad or was the doll that you would less like to play with. Now these are African-American children answering the questions. They were living in a structure of 
image inequality, that the power structure had defined what it means to be the ideal human, and that tended towards those who are white and in power. This is not just a problem at the beginning with the Assyrians. It's a problem that persists even today, uh, that, that power has a tendency of creating an imbalance in our perception and definition of what it means to be created in the image of God. Which means that people in power are manipulating the understanding of race so that it's permeating them through the culture. Is that right? That is right. And it's, it's often done in ways that are virtually impossible to perceive. It is the air that we breathe. It's the language that we speak, the values that we perpetuate in ways that oftentimes are not consciously conducted. It's the environment that we live in. Which comes to the issue of racialization and not just racism. It seems that there are people who say, I'm not a racist, but then maybe the same people or the same ones of us actually are racialized in the sense that we are perpetuating these biases within the culture. My, biases that we often... That's right, and biases that we often don't recognize because they are so implicit uh, to who we are. We, we don't even see it. Again, there was a, a, an interesting uh, experiment done in the Netherlands. Netherlands, one of the most progressive countries in the world, a country that prides itself on its socially liberal uh, agenda. A country that was absolutely rocked when a documentary aired a couple of years ago called Our Colonial Hangover. And this documentary staged an experiment with three young men. Each of the men had the same builds, the same height, and were dressed the same way. The only difference was that one was white, one was black, and one was of Moroccan descent. Now in the experiment, each goes nonchalantly to a bike that's locked at a post in a popular Amsterdam park. Uh, and each of the men uh, take turns trying to smash the lock in an obvious attempt to get to the bike. When it was the white man who was doing this, most people simply just passed by the guy. Some people stopped to actually give him advice on how to break the lock. There was even some who called over the park employees who proceeded to pull out a wire cutter to cut the chain. Virtually everyone that was interviewed afterwards stated that they thought that the white man simply lost his key and needed help to get the bike. Now when it was the, the black man or the Moroccan man, passerbyers often stopped to question those individuals. Some stopped even to take pictures of what they thought was a crime in progress and threatened to phone the police. And some actually did call the police, who came and proceeded to question the men. Again, none of these people were consciously attempting to discriminate. The scary thing is that this was all implicit. This was all welling from an area of perception that was almost impossible to identify. It was a worldview. All right, if we take this back to the Bible, you have used the Tower of Babel uh, both in the Old Testament, the, the, the Old Testament story, but also a parallel to it 
in the New Testament in Acts 2 to talk about that and how that relates to the topic. To this issue that the Dutch story gets at, and that is the systemic nature of racism. The way that, again, it's the cultural environments that we exist in that's almost impossible to identify unless we are given the tools, I, I would argue, by the grace of God. Uh, in the Tower of Babel, you have a story that most often is preached with human hubris or pride in mind. Look at humanity raising up in their arrogance uh, a fist of independence. And so the whole world had one language and a common speech. And people moved eastward. They found a plain in Shinar and settled there. They said to each other, come, let us make bricks and break the, bake them thoroughly. They used the bricks instead of stone and tar for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered over the face of the whole earth. Now, of course, this is a story about human pride, an attempt to be like God. But in a more fundamental level, when you hear aspects of the story, certainly the original hearers, they would not be only hearing a story of pride. They would be hearing a story of cultural hegemony. The reference to Shinar, Babel, to brick building, to a city, to a tower of heaven, in the mind of the ancient reader would all equate to the Babylonian Empire. The Babylonian Empire, which made a very big deal about their ability and technology to build massive buildings called ziggurats, towers that would look like it reaches to the heavens, and to do so through a complex technological advancement of brick building. So take King Nebuchadnezzar, for instance, the quintessential king of Babylon. King Nebuchadnezzar boasts that he had built this ziggurat, this tower, this structure out of bricks, and later in this uh, inscription boasts that 45 million bricks were used to indicate his uh, advanced prowess. And he raises it up to the top of heaven, making it gleam bright as the sun. So what's going on in this story of the Tower of Babel? Yes, it's about human pride, but more specifically, it's about cultural hegemony. It's about the Babylonians defining what it means to be the ideal person. The ideal person is the Babylonian. What does it mean to be the ideal culture? The ideal culture is the Babylonian Empire. This really is at the heart of what makes this issue of racism so difficult nowadays. It's, it's systemic nature. So I think about another study. I live in Boston, and this study cuts close to home. Researchers from MIT and the University of Chicago sent out 5,000 uh, fictitious resumes to help wanted ads in Boston and Chicago newspapers. And they manipulated perceptions of race by naming some of the resumes as being sent by Lakeisha and Jamal, African-American sounding names, and other resumes using white sounding names like Emily and Greg. What they discovered, that white names received 50% more callbacks for interviews, and that this racial gap was uniform across occupation, industry, employer size. 
it really is an indication that like the Tower of Babel, we live in a structure of cultural hegemony that we can sometimes scarcely even recognize. It impacts how we employ people, who we look as an appropriate mate for marriage, the identification of our in-group, a friendship group. Um, it really covers virtually every aspect of how we go about life, so much so that it's so often very difficult to identify, much less address. So to bring that over into the New Testament, how does the New Testament deal with this, and specifically Jesus, what was the context for him? I mean, in the Incarnation, he became human, he was male, he had a Jewish identity. What was the context for Jesus and the early church in addressing these issues? Jesus and the early church were absolutely astounding in the ways that they consistently sought to break boundaries and making the boundary breaking an actually essential part of the gospel. So when Jesus tells his disciples to go and make disciples of all the nations, by definition, he is picking up on this notion that whatever it means to be a follower of Jesus, it means to be one who intentionally seeks to cross boundaries. I think about the birth of the church uh, on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 with the great infilling of the Holy Spirit. How does the church proceed to act? I, I would think that, you know, if the early church were like modern evangelicals, the infilling of the Spirit would lead to some kind of worship service where we express our faith in hours of, of singing and adoration of God, and that's completely legitimate. Or perhaps maybe it's listening to the Word of God preached, and the Spirit of God moves, and we respond in obedience to the Word. I'm intrigued by how Acts actually describes the initial response of the early church to the infilling of God's Spirit. Of all the ways that God could choose to motivate the church. How does he do so after the Spirit of God comes upon the people of God? You go and you read that there was, dwelling in Jerusalem, Jews, devout people from every nation under heaven. And that they were amazed that they started to hear the gospel in their own language, hearing it as Parthenians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia and on and so forth. They were astounded that they were hearing the gospel in their own tongue, the mighty works of God. This is the exact reversal of the Tower of Babel. The Tower of Babel, a story of one culture seeking to have all other cultures speak their language. Here in the story of God's birthing of the church uh, is a gospel that is translated into the language of other people, unified around the gospel, but kept in the amazing diversity of God's created order, people from every nation, tribe, language, and tongue. And it makes it clear that whatever we mean by the gospel, of course it entails personal salvation from sin, but it also entails in the most fundamental way 
a call to reconcile and break boundaries. Uh, and as gospel people, we need to be committed to both aspects, the personal dimension in the forgiveness of sins, but also the social dimension in the reconciliation across boundaries. So they kept their language, so in that sense they retained their culture and their identity, but, but found a unity in the gospel and in Jesus Christ. How do you relate that to what I think is a really interesting list of the leaders of the Antioch church. In Acts 13, this is the church that sent out Paul and Barnabas, and one of their leaders is Simeon, and then Acts 13, one specifically identifies him as being black. So how do you connect that piece? Certainly in the ancient world, people had eyes. They could recognize that there are differences in skin color and in originating geography. Uh, and so in the ancient world, yes, they understood and called people uh, black or fair-skinned. Uh, but Frank Snowden, one of the leading scholars in the study of uh, race in the ancient world, makes the point that while color was identifiable in the ancient world, it did not have associated with it cultural meaning that would lead to discrimination. It didn't seem that skin color was the basis of preventing people from advancing in the Roman Empire. In fact, uh, some of the, the, the most influential uh, military leaders in the Roman Empire uh, came from Ethiopia, were uh, dark-skinned. Now, did they not have discrimination in the ancient world? No, they absolutely did. They were as sinful as we are today. But their discrimination showed up in different forms. Uh, if you weren't a Greek-speaking educated person, you were called a barbarian. Uh, and so that was a tremendous divide. Education, whether you were a Greek speaker or everyone else, the uneducated barbarians of the world. Uh, gender, sex, being male or female, was profoundly discriminatory in the ancient world. So discrimination has always existed existed because there will always be the use of power to create an image imbalance. Uh, it's just that in the ancient worlds they had different categories by which they would discriminate. Uh, and so in the church there was a recognition that people from different races, different skin colors, uh, existed uh, very comfortably with one another in the pursuit and the advancement uh, of the kingdom of God. But again, it wasn't infused uh, with this kind of cultural baggage. But this does raise up an issue uh, for me that I, I think I'd like to pose as a challenge to the church, that even if we get to the point of being diverse in the way that the church in Antioch was diverse, that we have a church, a local church, that has diversity of color, that does not mean that there is diversity of culture. It is very possible to have people of diverse color who have accepted and embraced a monocultural existence uh, in which diversity is achieved on the terms of uniformity, of kind of subjugation to a dominant culture. It's equally possible that we look at this situation uh, confronting us, the cultural baggage associated with race and skin color, facial features, 
and say, well, this is just too hard. The easier path would be to seek fragmentation, to find safe groups in which we're dividing in huddles uh, of African-American worshipers and Asian-American worshipers, Latino worshipers and Anglo worshipers, and finding safe means of coming together uh, at you know, citywide events. So you know, those are two possible avenues of having diversity of color, but everyone submitting to a uniformity of culture. Or to say that you know, we're going to allow different cultures to flourish and seek occasional moments to connect. I think the harder work of reconciliation is learning how to live together in close proximity, learning how to love the other in close proximity. This is what the early church sought to do. It sought to put the Greek speakers and the Hebrew speakers into the same church and to make them work it out. It would be a call, like the book of Galatians, to have Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians not go off and form a variety of subcultural groups that can safely coexist in isolation, but to do the hard work of coexisting in the present, learning to love the other, and to reconcile as one body. How we pull that off now? There are myriads of approaches we have to attempt. But I would say we should not be satisfied with anything less than this full notion of the gospel calling us to reconciliation, to do the hard work of loving the other, the foreigner. This is in fact what Jesus did. He could not have entered into a world defined in any other way as profoundly other. He didn't save us from a distance. He saved us by coming into and existing within a world populated by enemies, by children of wrath, by people who are, by definition, the other. And he did the hard work of coexisting with us in bodily form. So in following our Savior, I, I think we're called to doing that hard work of incarnating, being present with the other. And that brings together the biblical theology of race. And as you have said it, it is hard work. And there's the challenge to be faithful to Jesus Christ and the Bible, but to do the hard work that needs to be done. Our guest on today's conversation has been Walter Kim, the Associate Minister of Park Street Church in Boston. I'm Leith Anderson, and on behalf of us all, very special thanks to Walter. The National Association of Evangelicals is where we use influence for good. Today's conversation is one of many ways we connect and represent evangelical Christians in the United States. To discover more NAE topics and resources for you and your church, please follow along on Twitter at NAEvangelicals or on our Facebook page for the National Association of Evangelicals. And sign up for our email list when you visit our website at nae.net.